from Health 2023 in Las Vegas, Nevada. It's the MMM Podcast. I'm Jack O'Brien. I'm the digital health editor at MMM, and I'm pleased to be joined by a special guest today. I'm Caitlin Christine, CEO and founder at Gabby. Caitlin, it's wonderful to have you here. For those in our audience who may not know about Gabby, if you can give us the quick rundown of your company and your own personal experience that led to the formation of the company, too. Of course, Jack. Thank you. So I started Gabby after two very personal experiences. First, I was in my senior year of college when my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. She'd been getting her annual mammograms, but it turned out that wasn't the appropriate screening for her. So when her breast cancer was found, it was not by a mammogram, but it was too late. It was in every organ and she was gone in less than eight months. Fast forward a few months later, I found lumps in both of my breasts and I just had to fight to get physicians to take me seriously, to get the appropriate screening. And I ended up having what was supposed to be a preventative surgery only to be diagnosed with breast cancer in surgery at 24 years old. So it was really those two experiences that eventually led me to go into healthcare and after that to start Gabby. So Gabby, named after my mother, Lisa Gabrielle, we're on a mission to eradicate late stage breast cancer by ensuring every woman knows her risk and has access to early detection. And we do that by acting as a woman's on-demand breast specialist. So via telehealth, we are able to prescribe your mammogram, your MRI, your ultrasound, genetic testing, whatever you need as it relates to your breast health, starting with assessing your risk so that we are giving you the appropriate treatment based on your risk level and then getting you to the right care at the right time. Obviously appreciate you so much being able to detail your own story and obviously sorry for your loss given what happened to your mom and your own experience as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about the technology and actually, you know, the the nuts and bolts, if you will, of how Gabby operates? Because I know that, you know, prior to COVID-19, a lot of people maybe didn't have a true appreciation for telehealth services and what virtual care can be, but it's taken off and it's something that I think is second nature to a lot of people. How does Gabby interface in that way? Yes, exactly. So we're not unlike any other telehealth provider in which you would see see a clinician for, for something that you're needing healthcare for. Really, the biggest difference is that we specialize in breast health. So we are experts in assessing your risk and then guiding you to the necessary steps that you need to take to get to an early detection and be proactive. And then finally, really what sets us apart in our secret sauce, if you will, is that we've created a proprietary risk assessment. So today, if you were to get your risk assessed, which by the way, is very difficult to do because most OBGYNs and PCPs don't, but if you did, they would use one of the standard of care risk models that is ultimately archaic and built off of antiquated data sets so it can only predict risk for women who are white over the age of 35. So we created our own risk model that can predict risk for women of all ages and all ethnicities and do it better at higher accuracies and happens to be the first one that's consumer facing. So a woman is actually able to complete this risk assessment. She doesn't have to get a referral to go um, use this risk assessment. It's so interesting to hear you talk about that and kind of the health equity aspect. I know a lot of leaders that I talk to are always focused on the racial, and you even talk about the age aspect, the fact yeah. that you were diagnosed when you were 24, and most of them don't apply to 35. It seems like there is such a significant amount of room for improvement on that space, and that's kind of where you find your sweet spot as a company. Exactly. 
I'm curious when you talk about it from a, yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, there is an AI aspect mm -hmm. of the company as well. Exactly. I'm curious if you can kind of highlight that because a lot of leaders that I talk to are, are always talking about like AI is the thing of the moment, the chat GPTs of it all, but this is an AI that's like, no, it actually has a real clinical purpose and right. it's making a difference. Yeah, it's funny. I, I tend to downplay that AI because everyone is talking about AI so much and we've been doing it for years. <laughs> um, <laughs> so our AI technology is being used with our risk assessment. So our proprietary risk assessment is looking at information that a woman knows about herself as well as claims data. And using artificial intelligence, we're able to predict her future risk. So I'm curious about maybe where it goes from here. You know, we've talked a lot about obviously what inspired you to create the company and what's accomplished. What is the go forward? Obviously, you've kind of highlighted where there are obstacles to care for women of all different backgrounds. What is the goal? If we were to have a follow-up conversation in a year, where would you like to see the company be or maybe advancements in the breast cancer space? I mean, I'd like to be able to quote you the hundreds of thousands of women that we've been able to assess their risk and expedite the time it takes for them to get the right screening. So I'd love to be able to quote you that number next year. Um, I'd love for us to be something that women know of. They know who Gabby is. They're starting to use us in their everyday vernacular as someone that they go to as the expert for their breast health. And then if we go past the next year, ultimately we aim to apply what we've built specifically on early detection of breast cancer to other preventable cancers that affect women. So think colon cancer, ovarian cancer, uterine cancer. And how is that overlap? Because I imagine it's not just an apples to apples comparison no, between not. these other cancers. What is the difference in terms of being able to use that technology across different specialties? Well, it's, it's pretty complicated. And um, the similarity is that for a lot of those cancers, there are other things that are used to predict risk, whether or not they are standard of care, whether or not they're regularly used. There are other ways that a clinician is predicting a patient's risk of colon cancer or ovarian cancer. And um, so the overlap really is that's where we have to do the work to innovate to see if, in fact, a risk assessment using information like we are for breast health is applicable and clinically ap applicable to these other cancers and then take what we've built with breast health and apply it to those other cancers. It'll be interesting to see how that obviously go. You talk yes. about all the work that needs to go in that space. Going back to breast health for a second, I am curious if from your own experience, both being a patient but also being a leader in the space, any sort of misconceptions or maybe misunderstandings that stand out to you as it relates to breast health? Because I'm sure that people have their expectations, but you know, you know better than anybody that's maybe not the reality of it. A hundred percent. So I'd say one of the most common misconceptions is that family history is the only thing that impacts your risk. And that's not true. Family history, so having a family history of someone who has had breast cancer in your family only equates to 10% of what can impact your risk. So there's so many other things. I think the second common misconception is that there's nothing you can do about your risk. And that's also not true. Once you know your risk, it changes entirely how you get and receive care, when you receive care, what type of care. And so knowing your risk is essential. And it's not just if you have family history. There's other things like how old you were when you first started your period. Have you ever given birth? Did you breastfeed? All of these things impact your risk. And family history is not the biggest part of that. 
It's so interesting to hear you talk about that. And I think it kind of ties into some of the larger conversations I've heard from healthcare leaders even before COVID about the need for preventative care, the need to really empower patients in a way that really wasn't ever part of the conversation. It was more of a sick care model. And then when you mm -hmm. got sick, now we treat you and your company is saying like, no, we have to kind of flip it on its head in a way. Absolutely. I'm kind of curious, just outside of obviously uh, the work that your company has done, you're speaking here at Health too. Can you talk about the panel that you're on? Sure. I'm speaking on this panel with these incredible leaders in this space, uh, more so than I am, um, on the cancer journey. And really the concept is when does the cancer journey start and what is it like and how can we support employers specifically to make choices on different solutions or vendors that they bring into their organizations to provide as a benefit to their employees? How can we help inform that conversation and help them make the best decisions as it relates to the cancer care journey? And what are your thoughts in terms of maybe where employers need to, I don't want to say do better, but maybe make more investments in the resources available to their employees? Well, two things. I think the first is that employers are inundated with point solutions. They have point solution fatigue. I hear it day in and day out, and I know they feel it day in and day out. But you can't take something like cancer and just look for a cancer solution and hope that it checks the cancer bucket. Mm -hmm. And I think same thing can be said for women's health. You can't just get a women's, woman's health solution and assume that it's going to check the bucket for everything. And so it's what, what is important to impress upon employers is that we understand that you have point solution fatigue, but you can't possibly get a one-size-fits-all solution for some of your biggest problems. And we know that cancer is one of their top costs and problems. So I think that's number one, is that I'm sorry that you need a point solution for various cancers because one size doesn't fit all. I think the second is, um, and I would say this is a common misconception of employers, is cancer is a top cost, therefore we need to find ways, we need to find solutions that can decrease treatment mm -hmm. costs. And I think that is, um, that's really short-sighted, and also it's too late. Yeah. Because if cancer is caught early, it's cheaper and higher likelihood of survival. And so they need to go further upstream and not just be thinking about how can we change the cost as it's related to treatment and diagnosis. But if you get someone diagnosed, if we take breast cancer, for example, at stage zero, one, or two, the cost difference is over $100,000 per patient if you get them caught early. That's already significantly decreasing your cost way more than changing drugs will later down the line. So I think that would be the second thing is they need to realize that we're talking early detection here, not let's just let's just tweak the drugs that we're using for treatment and that'll help save us money and save lives. And that latter point you bring up too, I imagine that you're all too familiar with it is a lot of conversations I've heard with leaders is that they were so fearing the stage post COVID that we're at where a lot of people are going back for their screens that maybe they put off during the pandemic. And like you said, it's not only that their outcomes are obviously so much more dire, but the costs go up as well for them, for their employer everyone down the line for the system. Yes. I'm curious too, when you look at the conference, obviously there are a lot of uh, women's health companies here. A lot of them focusing on different aspects of women's health. As a woman leader in the women's health space, what do you make of kind of the, I would say, greater investment that we've seen maybe over the past couple of years? A lot that's been, you know, expedited by a number of different uh, things that we've seen on the policy level. I think of the overturning of Roe last year being one that really um, kind of spurred a lot of action there. But what do you make of the women's health space? Where is there, you know, are you optimistic about it? Is it kind of just you know, money being thrown at different problems? You know, that's a good question. I think certainly at first it was, I, when we think about the 
fundraising and investment side, all of a sudden, you know, every VC is trying to invest in, in a woman's health company. And whether it's they just need to do one so they can check the box or it's they see the shift and all this focus on women's health. And so, oh, we need to have a women's health strategy. We need to invest in women's health. And so, I mean, that's still happening. And I mean, honestly, if a VC hasn't invested in a, in a women's health company yet, like they're really late to the game. Um, and so now I think it's um, getting them to see, also not dissimilar from the employer, that a woman's health strategy is not just I've invested in one woman's health company. It's what are all the different facets that are really affecting women as it relates to their care and their health and where are the greatest pain points that have been the most underserved for women and their health and pushing in there. A lot has already been done with fertility, as we know. A lot has already been done with um, uh, postpartum and, and pregnancy. So what are the other areas that have been neglected or not as talked about as much? I think those are the really exciting areas and that's where I think um, I would encourage, or if I was a VC, that I would be leaning into. Yeah, definitely a lot more mo more momentum that can be seen in those spaces. I did want to ask you one more question before we wrap up here. I've been asking all of our guests here, obviously we focused a lot on healthcare and the conference and everything, but when it comes to being in Las Vegas, I know a lot of people come here for any number of reasons, for the shopping, concerts, casinos. When you come to Vegas outside of the conference, what is the most appealing part to you? I never come to Las Vegas outside of a conference. Okay. <laughs> That's an honest answer. That is an honest answer. I, I, I appreciate the candor. <laughs> well, again, really appreciate you being on the show. Wish you and your organization the best of luck and really appreciate you here. Thanks so much, Jack.